In John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's one of my favorite stories in that book is when Christian and Hopeful, as they were, uh, they had left the city of destruction and they were on to on their way to the celestial city. They uh, turned aside at one point into a meadow called Bypath Meadow. It's a very famous story. A lot of people love this story, and that's why it was so easy to find uh, people's drawings of this story all over the internet. But uh, as they were sleeping there in Bypath Meadow, a giant by the name of Giant Despair captured them. Uh, they were they were sleeping in in his meadow, Giant Despair's meadow, and he ends up taking them back to his castle, which is called Doubting Castle. So Giant Despair throws them into the dungeon. He, he leaves them there without food, no water, no light. It's a miserable place. And then he urges these pilgrims to actually kill themselves. And, tell them, and he tells them, your fate is sealed. You're going to die eventually. You might as well just do it yourself. Hopeful actually argues Christian out of taking his own life, because Christian was thinking about doing that. And it's a miserable state that they're in, miserable conditions. But one day, Giant Despair actually took them out of their uh, the dungeon, and he takes them out to his courtyard, as you'll see in this, this drawing here, and he showed them the remains of previous travelers that he had torn apart. Giant Despair told them that in ten days he would do the, the exact same thing to them unless they killed themselves first. And it was on a Saturday night, these, these two pilgrims, they began to pray. They began to pray, and after a few hours of praying, suddenly Christian exclaims, What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may walk at liberty. I have a key called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Well, that key of promise ends up, if you know the story, ends up working on the dungeon door and worked on other doors, and eventually they were able to get out to the iron gate, and the key of promise worked on the iron gate so they were able to escape and uh, get back out on the, the road leading to the celestial city. Hopefully you understand the connection of that story to the story here in Genesis chapter 12. There is a connection to Abraham because we've already read a lot of promises that God had given to Abraham and his seed. And just like Christian, God had given these to him, but Abraham was refusing to use that key of promise at coming at this point in his life anyway. So no sooner had uh, Abraham received Yahweh's promises, and now we, we're going to see him actually failing to trust the one who gave him the promises. And as we look at this story, I hope you will see some lessons for your own life. Because we too are frail, just like Abraham. We too tend to forget that we have the key of promise and fail to use it, just like Christian and Hopeful did just like Abraham does here. So let's read the scriptures coming from Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. Starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me because they will let you live. So you are, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dwelt well with Abram. And he had ox, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Proposition for us to consider today from the text is that God wants you to live by faith, not by sight. In other words, God wants you to trust Him. He is the one who gives the promise. We're to trust in Him and His promises and and live by that faith, but sometimes we want to go by what we experience, what the senses and our sight and what we see. So can you identify with Abram at this point in the story? I certainly can. Do we think that his decision is of going to Egypt was a reasonable one? Sometimes we reason that obeying God is all right so long as everything is going right. But when trouble comes into our life, we, we have this tendency, this fallen human tendency to not trust God, but we want to trust our own resources. Well, failing those, then we turn to the world for provision and Sometimes the world will actually provide for us. It provides for its own and for those who are actually willing to affirm it. And if you're willing to go the way of the world, sometimes the world will provide. But this is not the true course for the Christian. The last thing a believer in God should do is actually look to the world for help. We've got to be looking to God for our help. So you might ask, well, what should Abram have done in this situation? Because... As verse 10 says, there's a famine in the land. And by the way, may I remind you, this is the same land that God had just promised to Abram and his family. And this greater family eventually become the nation of Israel. What should he have done? Well, he should have trusted God. He should have believed that God had it all in control. He should have walked by faith and not by sight. And this is an interesting story because we see... A man who had been trusting God, but now we see him not trusting God. We see him heading down a bad path, and there's some things we can learn from this. So let's, let's just talk about Abram's six steps of unbelief. Six steps of unbelief, and you might even see these in your own life, or maybe some point in past. Uh, one commentator even called uh, what, what's going on in Abraham's life here is unfaith. <laughs> 
So we've seen his faith in the first few verses there, but now we see his unfaith. So let's, let's look at these uh, steps of unbelief. Well, first of all, obviously, it starts with unbelief. He's not trusting God. And, and as far as earthly circumstances went, the decision of Abraham was a wise one. It was a wise one, humanly speaking. After all, there's a famine in the land, verse 10 says. Abram could have expected uh, no food to come from the locals, the Canaanites. Uh, after all, you think about it, they're in the same situation that he's in. <laughs> Do you think everybody's in the same famine? Do you think they're going to give up their food to this foreigner, this sojourner in their land? Probably not. And what else is he to do? Well, unfortunately, even though there's ample circumstances here to justify his course of action, if that action evidenced a failure of belief in God, as of course it did, then guess what? That unbelief is still unbelief. And nobody, as Hebrews 11 says, nobody who's not trusting God can please God. Right? Without faith... Hebrews 11 says, it is impossible to please God. So he's not pleasing God by trying to, well, he's just not pleasing God. Therefore, he's not pleasing God, right? And then some people look at these kind of things and they ask, well, is it wrong then to look at my circumstances? Because that's what Abraham's doing. He's looking at the famine. He's looking at lack of food, lack of water, and so forth. So is it wrong to see your circumstances? I think the answer is no. It, it is important for you to see circumstances, <laughs> to see reality. It is no step in spiritual growth for us to be blind to reality in our lives. Our difficulty is not that we see circumstances, but our problem is we don't see the big picture. We don't see the whole picture like God does. It's kind of like those was- the waskids. Uh, puzzles, right? You ever done one of those? On the front of the box, on the front of the box, you're you're supposed to put this puzzle together of what the, everybody and everything in the puzzle is actually seeing, right? You know, for example, a bear's running out of the forest, and you're supposed to do what the bear sees and so forth, right? That sort of thing. And sometimes it's that way in our lives. We don't, you know, we, we're looking at one little puzzle or a few pieces of the puzzle. We don't get the whole thing, and, uh, that's fine. But God does. <laughs> he knows. He's the one who made the puzzle, so to speak, right? Uh, there's a picture that includes not only the earthly circumstances, but there's one where there's God, the God of the circumstances. And we, we need to try to, even if you can't see him and, and, and believe everything, we can believe that he has it in control, right? It reminds me of that wonderful story where the Apostle Peter is in a boat and there's a storm on the lake and he he wants to walk to Jesus, which just him mentioning that's incredible, isn't it? So he gets out of the boat, starts walking to Jesus. You know the story, right? Dangerous situation. But was was Peter's trouble when he set out on that Sea of Galilee to walk with Jesus? Because you know the story, he starts sinking into the, the water, right? He, he take, well, What's the problem there? Was it merely he saw the sea and, and he somehow knew that, oh no, 
water's dangerous. He's a fisherman. He knows that it's dangerous. He knows how dangerous, you know, uh, these storms can be. No, what, what's the problem here? He, he knew actually before he stepped out of the boat what the circumstances were and what the danger was, right? The problem was he took his eyes off Jesus, and then what he started to do was only look at his circumstances. So he's not looking at Jesus and circumstances. He's only looking at the circumstances. And here, herein lies Abraham's problem, and here's what tends to be our problem. We take our eyes off Jesus, and then, and then all we can see is our circumstances. There's great danger in that. And so that's, of course, when Peter started to sink and Jesus had to save him. So the first step for Abraham, and often for us, is where this is where it starts. It starts with unbelief. Unbelief. As we see in verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He's looking at his circumstances. He's not trusting in the God who promised him awesome things there in the beginning of the chapter. The second step of unbelief is lack of worship. There's a lack of worship. Hopefully remember in the previous verses, there was, there was a lot of worshiping going on. And the second step in Abram's decline here is indirectly suggested in the, in the text. We've, we've seen Abraham, he's, he's left this place called Bethel, which was his place of worship. And the text tells us he didn't actually go back to Bethel until he's kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. Bethel was Abram's last recorded residence before going to Egypt. And you can read about that in, in verse 8, where we see he builds this altar to Yahweh, and he, he calls upon the name of Yahweh and worships Yahweh. So perhaps in leaving Bethel, Abram left his place of worship, because it's interesting, there's, in the Scripture, there's no more recorded times of worship in Abram's life until he comes back to Bethel, until he returns. And this is what happens when people cease to trust God. The reason is, unbelief is sin. Lack of faith or unfaith is sin. And sin keeps us from God. Let me just give you an example of how this can work. Sadly, this is a very common example. And it happens too often when a person enters university and they might claim to be a Christian and have a Christian faith. But what often happens in university, they, they, they sin, uh, sexual or whatever sin it might be. And then uh, what ends up going with that is this downward spiral. They stop reading their Bible. They stop praying. They stop worshiping with other Christians. And then their life falls apart. He can't endure this inconsistency in his life. The, the profession is not matching the practice in his life. So profession is so-called up. My practice of my life is down. He recognizes he's a hypocrite. And so what often usually happens is, well, I'm going to bring my profession of faith down to meet my practice. Right? Disastrous. Bringing your profession down to the level of the practice, and then they sometimes even discount Christianity, and some people say, hey, I lost my faith. And sometimes they say things like this, well, hey, Christianity is just a, a lot of hypocrisy. 
I believe in God, but hey, I don't, you know, I don't have to go to church. I don't need to worship with all those uh, self-righteous hypocrites. I don't need to listen to sermons. I don't need that. You know, I, just, I think I'll just stay home. And eventually, this person's spiritual life withers away. Very common, sadly. But there, there are steps involved in that, and we need to be aware of those steps. You say, well, I, I don't want to end up like that. Well, just avoid the first step of unbelief. Keep worshiping God, right? Then you can avoid that. Trust God. You're going to find yourself wanting to worship Him more and more when you do. And in fact, uh, did you know this is one of the tests of your personal Christian experience, your Christian life? Ask yourself, is worship a chore for you or is it a blessing? Is it, is it a joy? Do you come to church only once a week and then you think you've kind of ticked the box, you've done your duty for God? <laughs> Some people think that way. Uh, are you are you watching your, your the clock saying, man, I can't wait to get home? Do you ever want to participate in a midweek Christian service with other Christians? Well, if so, you're probably, if that's if that is you, then you're probably not living close to God. You're probably not trusting Him, and you're probably not worshiping Him. But on the other hand, if you're one of those people who you, you love to engage in the worship of God, you love to be with God's people and other Christians and worshiping with them, and you, you love Sundays where there's corporate worship going on, it's a joy to you, you just can't wait to be with God's people and worship together, then if that's the case, then I can believe that you are trusting God. The third step of unbelief is self-confidence. Self-confidence. When somebody cuts themselves off from God with their unbelief, and then they... Um, and then they, they stop worshiping God. Well, here's, here's your next step. This person's going to de- decline into something other than worship of God, right? They're going to worship themselves, basically. Uh, this person begins to discount the wisdom of God in the Scriptures, and, and you have to replace it with something. So what are they going to replace it with? It's going to be self-confidence. It's man's wisdom. It's, it's the substitute of self-confidence in themselves and their resources. And this is exactly what Abraham does here. He sees his circumstances, bad circumstances, famine in the land. What am I going to do about it? <laughs> What's he going to do? Well, he, he had determined to leave Canaan for Egypt because of the famine. But no sooner has he made this decision, and now he's, he's faced with a danger that he, he knows he's going to face in Egypt. He knows his wife is beautiful, and Abram was afraid that some Egyptian would kill him in order to take his wife from him. A legitimate concern, by the way. That sort of thing happened a lot in that time period. So what is he to do? Well, at this point, he can't trust God for protection in this matter because he's already abandoned his trust in God to go down to Egypt in the first place. So what is he supposed to do? Well, What's he left with? He has to fall back on his own self-confidence, his own devices here. And so what does he do? He reasons. Uh, he, he's got to figure out some way to, to save his own hide, so to speak, and to protect his wife. Abram probably would not even have thought that this was lying, because in reality, his wife was his half 
sister, so he's probably excusing the lying that he's doing here by saying, well, she actually is my half-sister. And so he's, he's expecting the Egyptians to, from what I've read, he's probably expecting them to enter into to negotiations with him to get his half-sister. And therefore he thought, well, maybe I can drag out the negotiations and uh, maybe somehow quietly leave Egypt so that uh, they don't kill me and don't take my wife. Do you see him trying to reason all this out? It's his own self-confidence here. He's, he's doing it his way without God. And so whenever you want to do something wrong, you're, you're going you're gonna to be able to find good reasons for doing something wrong. In fact, you could probably even find a Bible verse to prove the sin you want to do. Very easy to do. Just take it right out of its context. See, if you can't think of those kind of things yourself, I guarantee that Satan will give you reasons. He'll give you, he'll give you the thinking to prove your sin. <laughs> and that's why God says we're not to do that. In fact, we're, Proverbs 3 says you're to trust in Him. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. But what's our tendency? Self-confidence, self-assurance, do it our way, right? We're, we're going to sort out these terrible circumstances that we find ourselves in. Yeah, that's, that's our tendency. But here's the fourth step. It gets worse. You keep heading down this path, it doesn't end well. It just keeps getting worse as it keeps spiraling down. And We see in verse 13 there's just more sin. There's just more sin here. Because look at verse 13. Now, now he's asking his wife to lie. <laughs> hey, now you go around and say you're my sister, that it may go well with me. Whose hide is he trying to save here, right? And that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> oh, my. So Abraham's initial unbelief, of course, was sin. Uh, but to that initial sin, we're just adding more. And that's what usually happens. See, that's the downward slide you start sinning against God, you lose your faith, you, you, you stop trusting in Him, and it just, it just keeps going. Abram lies. Now he gets his wife Sarai to lie also. And this is just compounded because now, now the sin brings more and more people into the sin. So now it's not just Abram, now it's his wife Sarai. His servants are a part of the lie, and eventually there's other people involved in this, and it just grows and grows and grows. And so even Pharaoh almost becomes involved in the sin too. He would have committed adultery with Sarai had God not preserved Sarai's honor. And my friends, this is the way sin works. It adds to itself. It's not that you know this illustration, but maybe you know the snowball illustration, hopefully, right? When I was a kid, I used to love making snowballs in the wintertime. And you just start, you say, how do you get a big, huge snowball? How do you make a snowman? Well, you just start with one little piece of snow. And then to that one little piece of snow, you can push it all around the, your, your section and eventually end up with something so big you can't even push it anymore. And that's the way sin, I liken sin to kind of like the snowball. You can't, you can't just uh, ignore it. It snowballs. So my friends, do you think you can just sin a little bit? That, that's what we tend to think, right? I'll, I'll just do a little sin and then, and then stop, and then everything will be okay. Well, that's 
not the way it usually works. You can't sin just a little bit because it's stronger than you. It's powerful. The fifth step in Abraham's life was great loss. Here's the fifth step of unbelief. There's great loss because his wife is taken. Abram had no idea what was going to happen to him in Egypt, but no, no sooner was he there that he, he actually finds his scheme to be inadequate, right? His plan didn't work. Oh, no, now what is he going to do? He hadn't planned on Pharaoh taking his wife. So he thought Sarai would be in his protection while he was able to negotiate with these uh, Egyptian men, but uh, that didn't work. So imagine his fear at this point. Uh-oh. Like the most powerful guy on planet Earth has just taken my wife into his household. Hmm, now what am I going to do? Fear. Not good. So my friends, I hope we can learn from this. So when you turn to your own devices rather than obeying God's clear commands, you usually do so for the sake of something in your life that you would call precious. Precious. Something in your life that you cherish. There's something very, very important to you. And of course Sarai was important to Abram. She's his wife. (laughs) And we become willing to abandon God to preserve whatever is precious. But if you follow that course, it's precisely then you, you're, you're likely to lose what's precious to you. You're not going to gain the world. In fact, you're probably going to lose it. The last step in Abram's life of unbelief is there's rebuke and humiliation. <laughs> rebuke and humiliation. You can read in verses 18 through 20 there, Pharaoh rebukes and humiliates Abram. Well, fortunately, God doesn't permit his children to go their own way indefinitely. If they are a child of God, Hebrews 12 tells us that God chastens and disciplines and trains his children because he loves them. And here's an example of that. Eventually, God brings his children back to their senses and back to him. And this is good news. He does so here, by the way, exposing Abram's sin and causing him to suffer rebuke and deep humiliation. Oh, that must have been embarrassing. That must have been. He must have been filled with guilt. He knew he had messed up. One is tempted to say that God intervened in the whole affair to save Sarai. Since the diseases inflicted on Pharaoh kept him from... uh, profaning the very one who was in the power through no direct fault of her own here. Sarai couldn't do much in this situation. But you need to realize the intervention on God's part here was also for Abram's sake. It was God's also, uh, he's going to keep his promises, isn't he? Do you see the irony here, by the way? Here is a pagan man, an unbelieving man who thinks he is God, He is setting a child of God in his right place. Of the true God, that is. And so Pharaoh, what does he do? He summons Abram. He rebukes him and then expels him out of Egypt. So what does Abram do? He's like that dog, you know, runs away with his tail between his legs. Knows he's done wrong. You know, the ears are down. 
Yeah, that's, that's what he does. Runs away with his tail between his legs, goes back to where he should be to start with. Abram went back to the promised land of Canaan. And there's some important steps of belief here that we can think about for just a couple moments. Look, look at Abram's steps of belief in chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Praise God. He gets back. I just got some, some, some steps for you to consider here on the screen. Now, what did Abram do when he called on the name of the Lord? He's calling on Yahweh, his very name here. Well, undoubtedly, he confessed his sin, recognizing that he's wrong, he had sinned. He wants to be fully restored to communion with God. This is what he knows to be the right thing to do, and and this is true because 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. So he, he goes back to the, the previous place of worship to God, puts his altar, sorry, builds this altar, puts a sacrifice there and worships God. That's what Abram experienced. He had sinned, got himself in big trouble, He's humiliated and rebuked by Pharaoh. But at least we see Abram is willing to admit his sin. He's willing to confess this sin to God. He runs back to the only one who can help him. And unfortunately, though, many Christians who sin don't do what Abram does here. They're sometimes, uh, sometimes forced to stop some sin, but... We may not actually confess the sin and return to the God who is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Sometimes we want to cover up our sins like David does. And uh, if you want to just cover your sins, then God's not going to cover them and you'll never be restored. It's foolish, isn't it? How foolish are we to fail in this? Because you know what? The devil devil will tell us, hey, you sinned. You can't go back. There's no hope for you. Give up. (laughs) The good news is that God is the God of new beginnings. Not only is God the God of second chances, He's far more gracious than even that. He's the God of many chances. This is not the only time Abram's going to mess up. Not the only time he's going to sin, but we're going to see a God who is faithful to His promises, going to keep running after Abram, bringing him back to Himself, And we praise God for a gracious God who is faithful, the God of many chances. And so it's important that we go back to what caused us to depart from God in the first place. You've got to recognize that sin, confess that sin, forsake that sin, and then return to this place of fellowship with God. It's where God wants you to be. He's, He's longing for you to return to Him. My friend... Do you want to destroy your life? There is a path that it leads to destruction. And 
if Abram had continued on that path, it would have led to destruction. Praise God, he turned and returned to God. But I want to tell you, let's just quickly look at another man here in this story who lost everything. And if you want to be one of those people who, who, who loses everything, then this is the path you want to follow. But if you want to learn from this guy and say, well, I, I don't want to end up like that, well, learn from Lot's four steps of unbelief. We have another example of somebody using his senses, looking at things around him, not walking by faith. Instead, he's walking by sight. And it leads to a very, very dark, bad place. Look at Genesis 13, verse 5. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Let's take a look at four steps in Lot's life. How do you end up destroyed, left with nothing, absolutely nothing, hopeless, in total despair? How do you get to that point? Well, for Lot... It just simply started by walking by sight. He was living by the senses. He looked toward Sodom. Do you see that? Chapter 13, verse 10. He looks toward Sodom. He sees lots of good stuff. And by the way, this looking was... Uh, we need to distinguish between one form of looking and another here. This looking was not a mere just looking with his eyes. Okay, We know that because... Abram used his eyeballs to look at the same land that Lot looked at, right? For Abram himself, of course he saw that. Abram, as well as Lot, knew there was a fertile plain out there along the Jordan River, and he, he knew there were cities out there on that plain. Lot's looking, though, was different from Abram's. See, Lot's looking was a longing. It was a covetousness. He, he's materialistic. It's all about him. It's not about God. It's a, a looking with his heart. See, he's up there in the hill country with Abram. God's prospered both of them. They, they can't live there together anymore. But he's not satisfied with what God has given him. He wanted things that he thought were still missing in his life. He wants more. God's not enough, right? 
He wanted what Sodom represented. And so, what does he do? He, he looks, but his eyes are covetous. They're covetous eyes as he looks out there toward the well-watered plains of Jordan. And so, my friends, there's a lesson to be learned here. Beware of the desires of your eyes. Do you know this is one of Satan's tactics he used in the Garden of Eden? He hasn't changed his plans. The same thing works over and over again, and we keep falling for the same dumb thing, don't we? The lust of the eyes. Adam and Eve fell for it. Hey, look at the fruit. It's good. Lust of the eyes. (laughs) Hey, it's good to look at. What a beautiful thing. Eat it. You're not going to die. Praise God. Jesus in Matthew 4, when Satan tempted him with the lust of the eyes, Jesus didn't fall for it. But you know, look at these verses here, because we need to beware of the, the desires of our eyes. Because 1 John 2 tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, no, look, here's what's in the world three kinds of sins. Right? You have the desires of your flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Same sins that Satan used against Adam and Eve, same sins that Satan used against Jesus in Matthew 4 when he's out in the wilderness, same ones he uses against us. But notice, this is helpful truth. Notice what it says. It goes on to say that that is not from the Father. That is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you fall for those kinds of sin, just beware, it's temporary. It doesn't last. It is not the will of God. But there is a will of God that does last forever. That's that's where you want to find yourself, my friend. Don't, don't, Don't walk by your sight. Live by faith. So it starts... At least in Lot's situation, it starts by his looking at Sodom. But look at verse 12, because we see then, then he starts getting closer. He starts inching closer and closer. Now he's, he's pitched his tent near Sodom, verse 12 says. And by the way, I, I think if you had asked Lot why at this particular time in his life did he settle near Sodom and, and didn't actually go and live in the city at this point, he probably would have told you that well, I'm not living in Sodom because that's a really wicked city. I mean, after all, that's God's description of it in verse 13, right? The, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, so Lot's like, he's not ready for that. That wicked place, no, I'm not going to live there. I'm just going to set my tent up right next to it. He probably would have had reservations a bit of uh, being that closely tied to a wicked place. Lot wanted to live near enough to Sodom to enjoy the advantages of being in that kind of a place. But he didn't want to be caught up in everything. However, we know, hopefully you know the story, as time went on, he gives in, the defenses come down, and we see the third step in Lot's fall takes place here. And He went and he lived in Sodom. Lot went and lived in the city of Sodom. Verse 12 says, and that's a downfall. Because the New Testament actually tells us, in fact, the Apostle Peter actually tells us this. He says, 
that Lot, did, did you know this? Peter says that Lot was distressed by the wicked lives of these lawless men of Sodom. He was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He's tormented? How can he be living in this kind of place then? Here he is. He's he's living there, verse 12 says. And moreover, it should be noted that although he is distressed by what he saw around him, as far as we can tell, if you keep reading on in the story, his wife and his daughters apparently were not distressed. the, The sin didn't seem to bother them. His daughters ended up marrying men of Sodom. And his wife seemed to have a very longing for that city and everything there and refused to break from it completely. And so then we end up with the fourth step in Lot's life is now he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. You can read this in chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? Well, it just means that not only is Lot living there, now he's, he's one of them, and he's one of the elders of the city. He's one of the political leaders. He's a business leader within the city of Sodom. As far as we know, he didn't change the city in the slightest, because God couldn't even find ten righteous people in the city of Sodom. He didn't have a single convert. And so when the judgment of Sodom came, uh, we know the Bible says that Lot escaped but he didn't bring his son-in-laws with him. All he brought with him was his life, his wife and his two daughters. And then, of course, Lot would have lost all of his possessions. He lost his, 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 most of his identity. And then after he left, the Bible tells us that Lot also lost his wife when God destroyed his wife because she looked back at Sodom. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. And Jesus uses this story, I think it's in in Luke chapter 17, and Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Well, how did he end up in a disaster like that? Why did this happen? Lot didn't live by faith in God. He wasn't trusting in God Lot's choice was by sight alone. He's living by his five senses, if you will. And sadly, it was the biggest mistake of his entire life. He lost everything. And so, my friends, we need to think about this. Here's two different men in this story. We have Abram and Lot. Both walked down a very destructive, bad path. The path of unbelief or unfaith. One man returns to God, confesses his sin, forsakes his sin, comes back to fellowship with God. But the other man, Lot, did not. And so I ask you, which one are you? Which one are you? See, we all fail God, but what do we do when we fail God? Are we going to believe that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Are we going to return or are we going to forsake him? Are we going to trust Him, put our faith in Him, Him alone? Are we going to choose to do our thing, our way, walking by sight, living by what we see? It's a very materialistic way to live. And so I ask you, what are you going to choose to do?
You're going to live your life based on your senses and what you see, or you're going to choose God's path. God's path clearly is walk by faith. And my prayer is that God would enable us to live by faith instead of by sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these examples you put in the Scriptures. And we know, because the New Testament says there's a lot there in the Scripture that is for our example. May we take heed to these examples, as you've commanded us to do. Uh, May we see these things and learn from them, the good and the bad. May we take heed, lest we fall as well. May we confess our pride and our our arrogance, our self-confidence. May we run to you, the one who is faithful and just, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful you're a God who loves us, longing for us to return. When we do wander away from you and rebel against you, we we know that you want us back. You'll take us back. Thank you. Uh, you do for us what we can't do for ourselves. May we, may we have short sin accounts. And when we do wander the path of unbelief, we, we ask that you would correct us. Would you show our evil, wicked ways that are within us? Uh, show us how we are leaning on our own understanding. And so may we, may we come to you, ask for your wisdom, your guidance, trusting in you. May our faith be in you. May we live based on faith in you and not in circumstances or people or anything else around us. And so would you give us that type of faith? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.